Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm L. Jeffrey Moore. And I'm Mark Purcell. And we have with us today a guest. Now, you're, you're from Washington, D.C., right, Deshauna? I live in the D.C. area. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, originally. Okay, all right. Oh, awesome, awesome. Well, well she's an entrepreneur and who created Quele TV, a streaming platform showcasing the filmmakers of the African diaspora. Please welcome Deshauna Spencer. What's going on? Nothing much. Thanks for having me. Great, great. So one of the uh, cool things about about uh, Deshauna was that I met her at a uh, dinner party a few months back. A fellow filmmaker decided to invite a couple of folks to just tell us about uh, Quayle TV. But uh, Deshauna, why don't you give us a brief bio about yourself? Sure. So, so Quayle TV, uh, we're a video streaming service similar to Netflix, but like you mentioned, we focus on the global Black community, the global Black experience. So we have content from here in North America, content from Latin America, parts of Africa, the Caribbean, and Europe. And um, my background is in journalism and communications. I studied at Jackson State University. Initially, my dream was to be a writer, storyteller. I worked for a couple of daily newspapers. I worked for a, a magazine. I started an online magazine before I started in Quilly TV. I did a documentary a couple of years ago as well. And um, my journey really shifted a lot from being a writer solely or working in media to starting a streaming service just based off of the need that I saw. So have a very interesting journey to getting here, but I'm here today just making it happen. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, um, definitely a journey. And then like going to your site and seeing, you know, the amount of uh, content that you have already, I'm sure, you know, by Netflix's standards is a mere drop in the bucket, but, uh, as with anything, small steps and uh, all of that. So have you ever been involved in filmmaking? So I did one documentary a couple of years ago called Moments Erupted. And so not really. My, like, so my background's in media, mostly mostly news. And so um, my dream was to be a, a documentary filmmaker. And most journalists, especially if you work in news, Documentaries is it's a it's a really great transition because you're sort of doing similar type of reporting um, and interviewing to create documentaries. And so I end up taking a couple of courses on production locally in the DC area, some film and documentary courses, as well as how to you know use a camera, shoot, edit video, those types of things to do my first documentary. I've only done one. And from there, it filmed, screened at a local film festival here in the D.C. area. And I was deciding, did I want to continue to do filmmaking? Because I actually considered going to school for filmmaking. There's a program at Columbia University that I was looking at at one point. And I decided to, instead of focus um, on filmmaking, but to help other filmmakers put their content out there. Because I did notice there was a disparity. The festival that I was in, it wasn't like a black film festival. It was like a uh, just a you know DC based film festival. But I would say I was probably the only black filmmaker there actually. And I was like, where is other you know? Um, and I know there are a lot of black filmmakers out here. And I was like, I really and I hear about these other really great independent black films, and I wanted to see them. And so I was like, well, instead of me focusing on creating more content, which I felt like would be a longer journey, which 
everything's a journey, right? Um, as far as like getting it to a point where I feel comfortable really putting myself out there as a, as a filmmaker, because you want to make sure that you know the craft well. Um, I instead decided to focus on um, having a platform for other independent filmmakers. And I can always go back and, and work on those all, all these ideals I have in my head about content. So I'm curious, when you made your first uh, documentary, like, can you talk to us about how that project came about? And, you know, you're, you're a first time filmmaker at the time, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, how did you pull your project together? And, you know, were, were you the director, the writer, the producer, the shooter? Did you do everything? Like, how, like, how did it all come about? I did about? everything. Um, so the, the film is called Mom Interrupted. I talked with um, and uh, met with seven women who lost their children to gun violence all in the age of 30. The women, well, all the, the men and women all, were all under the age of 30. And so the idea for the film came about because my background is in news. And when I was in college and also um, when I was in my early 20s, I was a cop reporter. And so I worked for the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi, and also worked at the Oakland Tribune in Oakland, California. So, which I think Oakland Tribune doesn't even exist. I think they went to business like last year or something. And <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> and so. The, the tower is still there. Oh, though. there it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I used to live in Alameda and I would just, you know, cross like over like the bridge or like uh, some, whatever it was to get to uh, Oakland from Alameda. Just a backstory about me living in the Bay. But um, so I, I hated being a cop reporter. It was depressing. And the most, most of the times I was interviewing moms who lost their children to gun violence. I mean, that was the cop reporter's job. That was what most of the things we talked about was someone getting shot. There was a drive-by shooting. There was a gang related this. Someone, someone got robbed. It was just um, really frustrating. And I would be super depressed all the time from hearing these stories. And that's the main reason why I left Daily News is because I got tired of interviewing moms. I got tired of crying coming home from work because someone was shot or someone was in the wrong place at the wrong time or someone was trying to get their lives together and then something happened where they you know went down this road and you know they were killed and so in one case the story in point i remember um there was my editor was like hey deshauna there's a there was a drive-by shooting it was a, a couple they they both died talked to the mother of the the woman who was in the passenger seat of her boyfriend's car Sure. So I, I called the mom, like, hi, I'm Deshauna. I'm with the Oakland Tribune. I'm so sorry for your loss. And then as I, I was about to say, ask her some questions, she's like, sorry for your loss. What do you mean? My baby's on life support. We're leaving the hospital now to get some clothes. We're going to spend the night. And you're telling me that she's dead since we left the hospital. I was like, ma'am, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not sure. Let me double check. And so I, yeah, I ended up going back to my editor and saying, hey, are you sure she's she passed away because her mother, they were in route home from the hospital and they're saying that she's alive and that she was on life support and that we're the first ones to know. And so he makes some phone calls and he's like, he comes back to me 20 minutes later. Yeah, she's still alive. They're not sure if she's going to make it. But yeah, she's still alive. But you still need to interview the mom. Ugh. So I had to go back, call the mom again. She puts her... <laughs> Jeez. That is ridiculous. That is crazy. That's daily news. Because it's not, in daily news, it's not even about sympathy or empathy, right? It's really about getting a story and you really can't marry the both. You, you can't have empathy and get a solid. I have a lot of empathy. I, I, I took one of those like personality tests one time, like my first job, um, like at the college. 
And they said my empathy was like a 90%. It was the highest I had ever seen before in their entire lives. So much so that the, someone said they weren't going to hire me because I was going to be a manager. And they're like, your empathy is too high to be a manager. That's what someone told me. Yeah, you have to be a little bit of a sociopath. I guess. Right? Have to be in, <laughs> <laughs> like, what in the world? Empathy is bad. Okay. I have a lot of empathy. So, it, <laughs> just, <laughs> so they're, they're worried that you can't fire anybody if you're too right. empathetic. Oh, oh, <laughs> like, me. I, I, I fire people. Yeah, I'm not the, the 2% steps in and, and does, its, does its job. But um, so needless to say, I got the story, but I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I vow to never interview a mom who lost her child to gun violence ever again. Fast forward a couple years later, I am in D.C. at the, the Congressional Caucus, an annual conference. And there's a woman, she was a senior hero, and she's based in Chicago. And so she has this mural in Chicago, I forgot her name, the name of the organization, but it, it it's like a, a memorial to all the young black men and women who've been murdered in Chicago. And so during her speech, she was saying, if we want to end gun violence, we need to talk to mothers. We talk to law enforcement, we talk to clergy, we talk to you know um, the legal system, we, we talk to politicians, we talk to everyone else about how we should fix it, but they don't talk to me. They don't talk to the moms. They don't tell them how they should go about fixing it. And so literally right then and there, mom interrupted, popped in my head as I was like filming her, have a comment, talking about it. And you know how life happens where I was telling people the universe sort of conspires where things happen. Literally the next day, I was invited to an event in DC called A Mother's Tea. I've never been invited before, and I've never been invited again but that one year. And it was basically an event that um, had an event to, as a way for mothers who lost their children to gun violence to come together and eat, break bread, cry together, and just, you know, come together. And so the next day I get the email, which is really weird. It wasn't, I didn't tell anyone that I had this idea or just something. I said, I'm going to do this. I'm not sure how I'm going to get it done. And then I get this email the next day. Wow. Yeah, isn't that weird how life happens like that? And so um, I emailed the organizers and the event was like in three days. And so I was like, I don't want to intrude, but I have this idea for this documentary. And do you mind if I come and meet some mothers? And so I went to the event at a table set for me. And I talked to probably about 80 mothers and about 20 of them actually signed the sheets that they were interested I had interviews with all of them and ended up choosing about seven of the of the um, 20 some mothers who filled out the application form just based off of their stories. What would be a good story to talk about? They had different backgrounds and kids were different ages. You know, I just really wanted to show diversity. And so I spent literally eight months filming these mothers. It was mostly, it was really like a very simple documentary with images video footage and, and pictures of, of like basically interviews and then pictures of their kids and them interacting in, in like home footage and stuff like that. I didn't really want to go like too deep into, you know, like them walking and like them going to the case, like, you know, all, most used to all the cases are already solved. So it was really about telling their stories as a way to educate people about, you know, gun violence and how it affects um, parents in, in general, mothers in general. And so I, and then it took me like, Gosh, eleven months. It took me like a whole year to edit. It was so much footage and it was so it wow. was so overwhelming for me. I 
well let's 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 back up really quick so <laughs> when you you you're you've got 80 women that you interviewed and then how the heck do you decide between those 80 like which ones to talk to and and how many did you interview in the end um i interviewed yeah. seven in the end so i spoke with 80 women at the event um and a lot of it was they had a table set up for me and they also let me go on stage in the middle of the event and introduce myself and what i was doing <laughs> And which is really weird, like say there's some random woman who said they want to interview some moms, like they let me actually talk on stage. And so um, so I, I met a lot of women at the booth and everyone didn't sign up. I, I gave all of them a chance to sign up, but some of them, it was too painful for them. As, as, a, as a former journalist, like some people just can't, they're not in a space to be able to have those types of conversations. You want people to be vulnerable on camera, but you also don't want to, you know, damage someone mentally trying to get a story. I hate local, I hate news sometimes, like when someone is like hurt or killed. And the question after is just so stupid. And like, how do you feel about your um, your uncle getting shot by a, how do you feel? It's horrible. What do you, you know, the dumbest questions I hate, that's why I hate um, news sometimes. So, and, you know, well, that that's the thing though, as far as like trying to find that perfect balance of, empathy and then trying to get the story out so hopefully you know someone someone else is is moved by it right right, right. so yeah it, it's, it's a it's a it's definitely something that you should learn how to do everyone doesn't have it and a lot of people in the media don't have it because they've just been numb to things happening all the time that they've just totally lost their empathy altogether and they're just trying to get the story and so i end up choosing someone just based off of having longer conversations with the 27 women who filled out the application, just having longer conversations, hearing about who their children, who their child was, um, learning about the story, the circumstances of their story. I, I really want to focus on stories about people who weren't doing something wrong, right? I, you know, because I mean, some stories, like honestly, I had a boyfriend, and, and for me, it's really personal too, because I had a boyfriend was murdered when I was in college my freshman year. My cousin was murdered when I was a senior in high school, and then my uncle was murdered when I was 23. Awful gun violence. Oh, and so really? I know personally how I feel wow. to lose someone from to gun violence, like personally. And so um, right. I had empathy for them. I would explain to them how it affected me, you know, losing my family members, and they were more open to talking to me about losing their child, their son, their daughter. And so um, it was really all about making sure I was telling the right story. Because a lot of times when people think about a black person getting shot or killed, they think, oh, they probably shouldn't have been, they should have been doing this. They wouldn't have been doing that. No, these people are like living their lives, doing absolutely nothing wrong. And for some crazy circumstances, you know, they end up getting killed. And I want to tell that story. And then, you know, the, the, the most horrific part about the story is how a lot of these moms are treated by law enforcement because law enforcement automatically assume that their child did something wrong and hearing these stories about how they were treated by the police was just even more devastating. Right. Was talking down to them and all that. Talking down to them, not giving them hardly any information, assuming the worst of the child beforehand, all these different things. And it just, it, so they were, they were traumatized because they lost their child and they're even more traumatized by how law enforcement treated them after they lost their child. And so it was a very touching story. People were crying at the screening that we had at the film festival. Many of the mothers um, came to the to the screening since they're all based in the DC area. One of one of the one of the, the siblings of one of the young men, because 
it was interesting, like one person who I interviewed, her son had died a month wow. before that. Literally, he had just died and started doing the interviewing process. And she was, I was like, I said, I don't know, I think it's too soon. So, you know, I want to tell a story because he was a college student and he had just come home for the weekend, something like that. Just like horrific. It's totally horrific. And her, um, her child, one of her children walked out of the screening. It was just too much for, for her child. And so, yeah, it was really, really impactful. And I, I, I made so many mistakes with that film. It's not a cooling TV. I had no cooling TV initially. Like, oh, so did you? So it. did you take it off? Or it was my first on one. <laughs> what? Yeah, it did no. I took it off because it was just like the color, like everything is just horrific. Wait, snap. so I, so so how did you shoot it then? Did you did you just go out with you yourself and a camera? Like, what kind of camera did you did you get? Like, how did you light it? How did you approach it? So I went on, so um, I bought a DSLR, a Canon. And so I bought like, um, like I said, I took a couple of classes on documentary filmmaking, how to edit shoot, framing films, you know, art storytelling. Uh, I, I literally took, you know, uh, classes on documentary filmmaking in general and then for editing. So I, with the information that I learned, I was like, okay, let me try to do this documentary. And it's going to the film festival, but I'm still not sure if it's, it's not at a space where I think I wanted to be out in the world anymore, especially after watching so many awesome films. And, uh, and honestly, there are a lot of um, independent films, especially documentaries that it's definitely guerrilla style looking. It's not like perfect looking, right? It's about the story, but because of me, I just feel like, oh, it's not good enough anymore. I'm gonna take it down. But um, but people love it at the film festival. Like, oh, this is awesome. People are clapping at the end. And I was like, oh, I saw so many horrible mistakes. And see, we're clapping. Did you just light it with like, natural what? light or did you buy lights too? <laughs> and then how did you, wow, okay. No, no, I bought lights. I bought, yeah, I had lights, um, but I just, I don't think the lights were great. I just, I don't know if I did a very great job with lighting. I, I think it was probably, it just, you know, it just wasn't perfect. I had lights, I had external mics, I had all the things you're supposed to do. Because my background's in media too, so I knew they needed lights, they needed external mic. And so I had lapel mics for them. And um, I, would, I would, I would, you know, um, record different angles. Cause I only could afford one camera, so we would cut and then um, I would, you know, have them, I'll ask them the question at different angles. So we got different angles of, you know, of, of shooting. So it wasn't like it was just all, you know, like natural light and, and it was like you hear sirens in the background, right? <laughs> but um, wow. I just like- And, and just, so you just, just, so you just went out and you just did this all by yourself. Like you figured it out, you learned, you took some classes, you got the camera, you got the audio, yeah. you got the sound, man, yeah. that's amazing. Um, I really want to see this movie. Uh, yeah. Is it out yeah, anywhere yeah. <laughs> or are you like keeping it locked? Maybe no we can way. filter the board back up. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm keeping it locked. Oh no. <laughs> oh man. I think we need to have another dinner party anywhere. of like, yo, where's that, where's no that way. documentary? <laughs> yeah, mom, I, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna redo it. I really wanna redo Mom Interrupted. I'm still friends with all the mothers. We're friends on Facebook. Whenever they have, you know, some type of memorial for their son or their daughter, they always invite me to it. They love the documentary. You know, they they all they all have copies of it because they show showed their friends and family members, and and I was really proud of it. You know, just based off of the the content, but it's just like and you know, looking back on it, one of the things I've learned that I can't do everything. So. 
I know my strong points. I'm really great at extracting information from people. I'm really great at storytelling. I'm not so great at handling a camera, right? Um, so in, in if, if I were to do this again, just hiring someone to do that part for me where I can focus on the most important thing because it was really hard for me to ask the questions, also trying to angle the camera differently, which is yeah. a lot of work. You know, re redoing the lighting, you know, like looking back at the camera and then like trying to hear in the audio while I'm also answering, asking questions. Yeah, no, like, that's crazy. It was just yeah, we'll, a we'll, lot. Well, definitely, you know, the the plight of the one man band filmmaker. I think that it's just a natural evolution of a filmmaker, you know, like, you know, one person grabs a camera, grabs whatever, gets a subject, shoots, does whatever they can by themselves. And then progressively they you know, they know that, oh, okay, well, I need to get a boom operator. Okay, well, I need to get someone, I need to get a cameraman. And that's how you actually start to find out your strengths and your weaknesses and, you know, who you need to come on board. But speaking of uh, creating content, so let, let's get back to the the history of Quayle TV. I mean, I'm pretty sure towards the end of uh, this podcast, we're, we'll try and coerce you to, to put that documentary back up on your own streaming. Yeah, platform. yeah seriously. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I have I have things that I made when I was first starting out that is out in the world for people to see things I've acted in things that I just made that and I my whole belief is just put it all out there. It's there. It's, it's part of your development as a filmmaker and you get better, you get better, you get better. I know not a lot of people share that view. There's some people who hide things, but I don't know. It, it sounds like it was a really emotional movie and then it really struck a chord with people. So that's, that's, that's the most important part of filmmaking in general. Like it doesn't matter what it looks like. It really doesn't matter what it sounds like. As long as you can hear what's being said, like, getting a good story out there with a like emotional core i think that's the hardest thing to do and the most important thing to do and it sounds like you did it so that's why i really want to see it because i really want to you know experience this movie that you made you know it was too long it should have been short you know just lots see, of you sound like a true filmmaker right? oh, yeah. <laughs> so cool so why don't you tell us uh the history of a uh, quaile uh tv so how yeah how did all this come about so honestly, it was just, it all came about for me watching TV and seeing TV sucks. I still think TV sucks. Yeah, there's, you know, Insecure in Atlanta and, you know, we get to basketball <laughs> shows for like a couple weeks, a year. <laughs> but <laughs> because literally, right, you know, you get like eight episodes and like, see you next year. I'm like, really? Jesus. So, yeah. Um, so I was really frustrated because I didn't see any characters on television I could relate to. Um we all like no shape like the, the the major like networks. I like throwback movies. I like Set It Off and, and The Best Man in the Wood and Boys in the Hood. I love all those movies. But gosh, like I don't I can't watch them over I'm just not the person who watches the same movies over and over again. Um I wanna see new film, I wanna see new content and I wasn't seeing it. You read Shadow and Act and hear these really great like these really great independent films at the film festival, I'm like, okay, well Maybe there's a streaming service that has these films. I assume Netflix has the, all these films. Like, oh, Netflix has everything, right? They have Juice. I'm pretty sure right. they would have where we feel was an ABFF. No, it wasn't. Um, and so when I learned that Netflix didn't have these films, and when I learned that there was no other streaming service that had these types of independent black films, that's when the light bulb hit off. Like, maybe I'll do it, <laughs> which is like a crazy light bulb. Who thinks that? <laughs> who's, who's like... 
oh, no, see, so I'm going to start a streaming service <laughs> and compete with Netflix. Like, no one, no one dreams that. It doesn't happen to a lot of people, but for some reason, it happened to me. And so I told one of my good friends, like, one day, this is like 2015, so I had this ideal to start a streaming search for Black movies. And so she was like, her, she was just quiet, like, how are you going to do it? It's like, I don't know, but I really feel this urge to do it. I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. And my initial thing was to focus on, like, have some throwbacks and then in the indies, right? Um, but now I'm just focusing solely on indie films because you can find reruns of the Martin on BET or TV1. Like, why right. would I show mm-hmm. something you can watch on anywhere at any time? And so... That it was pretty much just started from frustration, not seeing images I want to see in mainstream media, not seeing independent films I want to see that I read about online, and realizing that black filmmakers are least likely to get a distribution, just seeing the, the struggles talking to filmmakers who are trying to get on Netflix, but they don't have a name behind themselves, or the, the films don't have like a, a well-known actor behind the film, and so getting on Netflix is nearly impossible. And it's really interesting with Netflix, unless you're like a if you're not a big name, if you're a white filmmaker, you make a black film, you're, it seems like you're more likely to get on Netflix if you're a black filmmaker with a black, black documentary. And so um, I wanted to change that. I wanted to be that person that gave our filmmakers, gave black filmmakers opportunity. Now, all of our filmmakers aren't black. 85% of them are, but all of them are not. Um, and I do make sure that if our film is made by a person who's not black, that I am very critical of it. I'll watch it from, you know, front to beginning and, you know, begins to end just to make sure that it's not monolithic or demeaning or stereotypical. And if it's not, it makes on the platform. And, and what would so, you just, you know, as a, as a white filmmaker who's made movies, uh, you know, with a very like diverse cast or, you know, sometimes starring, you know, only uh, people of color, uh, like what, what would make that acceptable for the platform? Like, does it have to be also like, you know, about um, like a cultural thing or, or something that relates to, you know, you know, an African story or a black story of of some kind, or can it just be like a story that features, uh, you know, actors that aren't white? Right. So both, Um, we definitely want to show our culture in different parts of the world, but we also want to show black people doing things that that it could be, it could be someone who's purple, but it's a black character, right? So um, for us, the lead character has to be black and uh, to be on Chloe TV. That is, you know, the black character can be a sidekick. We also want to make sure, as I mentioned, that it's not extremely stereotypical and showing black people around the world in a light that may be more glorified in mainstream media than not. And so, um, as I said, you know, we have all types of filmmakers on the platform, although most of, most of them are black. Um, as a, if someone's a white filmmaker, for us, as long as the lead character is black and the storyline makes sense, and it's not a storyline that that's rimmed with you know certain stereotypes about black people, we're totally open okay. to having the film on the platform for sure. But the lead character just has to be black, it, you know, it, and it can't be. Yeah, it's just it's just number one for more than anything. The lead character has to be black. That's that's super important for us. Yeah, because as a filmmaker, like the kinds of movies I'm making are, uh, you know, they're like sci-fi, horror, whatever, just like kind of, you know, just more normal 
topics, like just featuring characters that could be any from any background, any culture. But I just tend to cast uh, non-white actors in my lead roles because I, I feel like it's really important uh, to do that as a filmmaker today because we're just not seeing a lot of that. You know, even though it feels like we're getting more and more uh, diverse casts and more and more uh you know films and tv shows and movies with with leading roles for uh non-white actors i feel like <laughs> you'll watch a movie that has like a big name you know uh non-white actor in it but then the lead role is actually a white guy or a white or a white woman you know and you're like what the fuck <laughs> you know why did you put that guy in that role and you have this other amazing actor who's in the side role like that happens like all the time. So like for me, since I'm not beholden to anybody as an independent filmmaker, I'm just really, it's important to me to put, um, you know, non-white actors, whether it's like, you know, Asian, Mexican, black, whatever, just in the lead role, you know? So it sounds, sounds like you're open to um, the kinds of things that I'm making, right. which is interesting. But you know, though, Ulrich, I mean, that's the thing. Like we're, we're seeing as how we're seeing how, the landscape of content now where everybody is being represented to some degree, whether it's the lead role or, you know, the second to the lead or what have you, but it, what's what it's boiling down to, you know, as you can attest uh, as well, Alric, that, you know, when, when you make a film and you're trying to get name actors, it's all about worldwide distribution, right? And so usually what happens with worldwide distribution is that they tend to worry about, oh, well, okay, well, Will uh, this, you know, person of color bring in the money overseas or what have you? So, you know, now that we're seeing, you know, maybe the caveat would be Denzel or Will Smith. Those would probably, like, <laughs> I mean, right? right. <laughs> no, right. but so I heard that a lot of AFM last year, you know, I would be pitching my movie and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I want to have a non-white lead in, in my, in my, as my main character. Oh, maybe a, a, a black guy or, or a Mexican guy or whatever. And then. A few times, like more than a few times, they'd be like, oh, no, that's never going to sell. Oh, you got to have a white lead. Like, oh, yeah, that's okay. Like diverse casting's great, but just not in the lead role. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, did you see Get Out? You know, did you see like all these other movies that are coming out and doing so well? I feel like people hide behind that um, cliche and it's I don't think it's true. I think people are just scared. But based on my you know, outsider's view, like it doesn't seem to be any correlation, like movies with, with, uh, you know, non-white leads seem to do really well. Like, I mean, Luke Cage is an amazing show, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was an amazing, it was, show. yeah, well, it, it was. was right. It got canceled. <laughs> yeah, it was. I'm thinking it's <laughs> Disney. They're going to put Luke Cage and Iron Fist together and we're going to get heroes for hire. That's, that's my, that's my guess. I'm, Hopeful. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I really like Mike Coulter a lot as an actor, yeah. not just from Luke Cage, but from like everything that he's been in. And he's actually on my list of potential leads for my movie. So I'm like secret, like, well, well now he's more available. Maybe he'd be <laughs> interested in, you know, reading my script. I, mean, I don't know. He's not doing anything <laughs> right now. <laughs> and if he's not interested, then you know. <laughs> or if he, and if he's not interested, you know that he's working on some secret Disney right. thing. But... <laughs> But um, but yeah, I agree um, with everything you're you're both saying. And honestly, it's really interesting too because when you talk about like lead actors, like for us, when I started Quilly TV, one of the things that people were saying, well, a lot of these films, the the actors are no name actors or the the directors are no name directors, and 
you're asking people to pay for something with people that they you know they never heard of before like no one's going to watch this content but like look at something like get out i mean the the lead characters weren't exactly well known i mean i've heard of the the lead character before but he wasn't he hasn't like a global yeah um, not at that time appeal right yeah not at that time he wasn't and then black panther had come out yet so he had a role in black panther as well so um at the time he he didn't have that type of you know stage or other people uh, worldwide but it still did well and with chloe tv we're proving that it doesn't matter if denzel mill smith or whoever is a black even black famous person <laughs> is in the film that people will still watch it. It's interesting listening to like how our customers talk about Chloe TV. I'll say they always say the same thing. Oh well these are they're independent films. They're not huge budget like box office movies and the filmmakers uh, we never heard of filmmakers before and the, the actors are no names but the movies are good. <laughs> they got all of that. <laughs> but the movies are great. Yeah. They're, they're great. You should try it out. <laughs> You kind of like that, that, that movie's a great verse, like the no name actors and the budgets aren't huge, but like that's kind of what we're we're hearing from our customers. And we're proving people wrong that you need to have a big name actor in order to have a successful streaming service or, or a successful company in general, because we don't, I don't think any of our films have a, have a known actor in it currently. Um, these are all up and coming actors, up and coming filmmakers, or even maybe some well known independent filmmakers that people know just in the indie world. But as far as for you know us and Joe, like we're we're trying to change that concept of what people think. Nice, will be awesome. So, film. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. No, I was I was just gonna ask as far as like you know, so how does one create a streaming platform? I mean, you gotta you know, as far as like creating content, we can all talk all day long about that. But what about actually like making the app? And uh, where can we find the app? And how, to, how did you go about getting all that done? Right. Um, that was probably the hard part <laughs> more than anything. So before I started Chloe TV, I mentioned I had an online magazine. And if you go online, you can read numerous articles on how to start an online magazine. You can actually buy books at, on Amazon or in Barnes and Nobles. You know, there's like a book called How to Start Online Magazine for Dummies. There is no how to start a streaming service with them. It's like it doesn't exist. And so a lot of trial and error early on in trying to get the technology piece going. I hired numerous um, tech people. A lot of them were, you know, um, meant well, but they weren't able to really get us out of beta. And so um, I ended up hiring people who, a company that has experience in video streaming, they have experience in building apps, things I'm not really great at. So I can focus on the things I am good at, which is the content piece. So once, you know, it's, I don't know how to make an app. I can't tell you how to make an app or how to get into Roku or, or Apple TV. I don't know how to do any of that. I just say, you know, hire people who know what they're doing to help you get to that space. And right now we're on Roku, Apple TV, Google Play, iOS, Amazon Fire. Wow. Nice. Awesome. So when you first started, um, like you didn't have any content, you're just for trying to figure out the streaming service. How did you start to find the films that you know be, are part of your platform now that are on Quayle TV? Like, how did you begin your search? Honestly, through film festivals. Um, I reached out to film festivals. I reached out to filmmakers. Started building relationships with filmmakers. 
when before I even started the company, I had 30 filmmakers who were on board before I, I had a website. Just talking to them and just talking to them about my vision and what I want to do with the company. And so they believed in me so much that they gave me their content just based off of an ideal. And that's pretty much how I work to this day. I still talk to every single filmmaker on the platform I've spoken to personally at least once. And right now we're working with that, like 165 filmmakers globally. <laughs> uh, if not, maybe they're a distributor or something like that. But I speak to them personally for the most part. They all know me personally. <laughs> they have my email. You know, usually, um, I, you know, we like we pay filmmakers. I get an influx of them, you know, emailing back at once, you know, thanking, you know, th thanking me. And so as we grow, I'm sure it'd be more difficult to have that type of relationship. But it's really important to me. I want my filmmakers to know that, of course, I create this for the consumer so people can learn about our rich culture, but also create this platform for them. So their films won't die once they leave the film festival. I want a space where filmmakers could have a home to their film indefinitely or whenever they want to move on to something else. I just wanted to create a space for these great films. And so I take it very personally on how I treat filmmakers. You know, people always, always ask me, what's your favorite film on the platform? I say all of them, just like you have a, a, if you're a parent, all, you know, you don't have favorites, although, you know, some parents do, but technically, you're not supposed to have a favorite, you know, I don't have a favorite, quote unquote, film, parent or child, whatever. And so I, I treat them all the same. We, we promote them all the same. I don't have a hierarchy on like a Netflix, you know, Netflix are going to, they're going to promote the hell out of, you know, the films to spend globs of money on versus the cute independent film that did really well at the film festival, they're not going to promote that film as much or promote it at all. You have to basically, you have to trust some algorithm to define that film. That's not how we operate. Gotcha. So, so how do you um, pay back filmmakers? Like, do you pay any money up front for the movie or is it all just based off of the amount of subscriptions you get, um, you know, as, as, as the, once the movie's on the platform? We pay uh, filmmaker filmmakers similar to Spotify um, 60% of our revenue goes to our filmmakers every single quarter. And it's based off of how many minutes reviewed um, per, per title. And so we do some MGs, as they call it, <laughs> up front. It just depends on the film. If it's been, it's like in Sundance and, you know, it's like a tenor for the Oscars or something. Okay, yeah, you know, we can try to put some in our budget to, you know, do a good minimal guarantee. But for the most part, um, we we pay most of our filmmakers every quarter based off of, based off of minutes view. We keep open books. Um, we, we send all of our filmmakers a spreadsheet with their views are how much money they've made. Um, and then within 24 hours, we pay them. And so talking to other filmmakers has been really interesting saying that, you know, these filmmakers say they're on other platforms and they're like, well, it's trying to you, we make more from you than blah, 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 or, you know, whatever. Or we've been on another platform for three years and I've never seen a check, I've never seen any minutes view, I've never seen anything. Those things, I hear those types of those horror stories, I'm shocked. Like I'm a regular person. You know, when, when you create something, people put you in a pedestal, like you're this like, you know, wow, you're this genius. I'm a regular person who had an idea who wanted to make change, right? 
and I didn't know what I was doing. You know, um, when I tell people we have to keep open books and everyone sees how their how their views are, people think that's insane. People are like, why did you do that? But no one's complained so far. Like, and so because I didn't know how to do it, I think I probably did things that maybe most people think would be totally wrong. Um, but our filmmakers appreciate it because I want them to see this is how much money we made for the quarter. And this is what your 6% is. So I'm not lying to you about what your minutes view, views are. And I'm showing you what other people's views are. So you're not thinking, can this really be right? Can, you know, did she make this up? So I keep it open because I want people to know I'm not going to treat them wrong. I'm not going to lie to them. You know, we're not rolling in the dough, but I want them to see what we are making and how it, you know, and how it affects how we pay them. Wow. And, and so this is your, is this your full-time job? Yes. Full and plus. <laughs> yeah, full and plus. Yes. Wow. So, so then here, I have a couple questions. So they get paid per minute for, for, per minutes viewed for their movies. Um, but then does the amount they get paid per minute change depending on how much money the platform makes yeah. each month? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it does. So it's based on how much money we make. And we did that because I can't, I can't go bankrupt. I don't want to go bankrupt, like by paying, I can't go bankrupt by paying filmmakers. And so give them 6% of our revenue as we grow, they grow. As we make more money, they make more money. And, um, and we tell them up front, we do another exclusive as well. So, um, our filmmakers, as long as they're behind a paid wall on Vimeo, or we have some filmmakers who are on Netflix when they're with us, or on Hulu and other platforms, we're okay with that. Our goal is not to be the end all to a filmmaker. I don't want to take any, you know, food for any baby's uh, filmmakers' mouths. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. <laughs> right. Our right. goal is to be a curator and celebrate um, Black filmmaking and provide space for filmmakers to make money. I will say that, you know. Even though we do non-exclusives, it's for most of our films, they're not in a lot of other places because of the difficulties a lot of these filmmakers um, have with trying to get the films on, on other platforms. But we keep it open for them to be non-exclusive because we want we want we want them to make money. We don't want to, you know, keep them from making the full potential that they can from their film. So, I mean, obviously, I don't want you to like, you know, uh, release hard numbers or anything, but just you know, as somebody who's working for another a platform sort of similar to yours, a little bit different, they're not so so focused. They're not only doing um, films by black filmmakers and featuring uh, black leading leading actors. They're doing like, you know, a- a- anything that's n- like kind of culturally, di- culturally diverse and like anything that, you know, is basically a non-white focused story, you know? So they, they have like, you know, movies from all over the world, basically. Um, but are you guys profitable yet? Like, are you able to like, or, or is it, are you still like just running off of like investment? Like how, how is, I mean, how's it looking just in a very vague sense? We don't have um, investments in the traditional term of investors. Um, I've won pitch competitions. I've won grants. I've won, you know, 40,000 like convertible note here and 50,000 convertible note here. I probably only between um, grants and, pitch competitions and stuff like that, I've probably only raised about a hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. Oh wow. Yeah, that's 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 so the rest is that. all just subscriptions? Mm-hmm. And this is all the past wow. three years. Like yeah. Wow. Yeah. Dang. So you've only only raised a hundred thousand in three years and the rest has just been from the comp the, the platform making money? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Wow. So you guys are doing well then. <laughs> 
I mean, <laughs> that's awesome. Congratulations. Sense, yeah, I know, right? That, that's tough. <laughs> in a sense, well, yeah. I mean, we're okay. So we're we're making money. We're profitable because I don't spend more money than we make, um, and we pay our filmmakers a recorder, right? And so we we have enough money to to pay our our tech people, we have enough money to spend a little bit money on marketing, and we have enough money to pay our filmmakers a recorder, and that's how we're able to keep our business going. I don't. I go back and forth about investors. First, I've had trouble, you know, with in, you know with investors in general. Um, some of them have asked me, you know, silly questions about, you know, don't you guys have BET or, um, you know, won't you like partner with Worldstar Hip Hop? I mean, or you need to have certain types of movies on your platform. Why don't you have Slash the Company? Because that's what Black people want to watch. Very negative things, and I've learned that I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be very particular about the people who come on the team, especially as investors. I don't want anyone to dilute our mission. Um, because they think that black people only want to watch blank. And so I haven't gotten right. any investors so far. Like I said, I've gotten, you know, small convertible notes, like very, very small convertible notes. And I've won 10,000, 5,000 here and there from pitch competitions in the last few years. But that is it. And so um, I'm not running my company on investors. I run my company like I run my house, which would be this is how much money you made this month. And this is how much money I'm gonna spend. I'm not gonna because if you were if you run if I run my if people ran their house like they ran companies, you would be homeless. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so are you guys doing any original programming or is it all just taking in films from that were made outside of the platform? We're not doing originals. We do a show called Meet the Filmmaker where we interview our filmmakers on our platform. And that's just a Facebook Live. It's nothing really, you know, big production involved. It's just turning on a turn on your 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 laptop, you know, and having a conversation with the filmmaker somewhere else, maybe here or somewhere else in the world. That's the only original show we're doing right now. Other than that, that's it. Um, it's very expensive to do original programming and we have similar competitors who like they're and a race to create original programming. Clap, right. clap, clap, good for them. I think it's very <laughs> it's just very expensive and to do it right, you have to keep it up, has to be a certain production quality. I can't compete with HBO or, or Netflix. I can't create um, Atlanta Issa Rae show. I can't create Orange is a New Black. I don't have the resources to do that properly. So I'm not going to. <laughs> Um, instead, I'm going to focus on what I can do with the resources that I have, and that's to support filmmakers and curating their content. That's awesome. And, and is original program something you'll do later on the line once you have the kind of funds needed, or are you just happy just being a curator and bringing in filmmakers the way that you have so far? Yeah, definitely. Um, the goal is to do originals eventually, but not like tomorrow. I think people, you know, because of Netflix, right? <laughs> People are like, well, Netflix has this. If you want to be successful, Deshauna, you better start creating some original shows. Well, shit, Netflix, how long did it take them to? They were DVD for how long? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they didn't do it. Years. I mean, they were like years, right? And then they streamed for a long time. It took them like, uh, what, at least 10 years before they started creating original programming. And now, so a small company like myself, in order to compete, I need to create 
a, a show tomorrow. Like, no way. Like, I just will not. So uh, I'm like, I'm a very stubborn person. I don't follow rules, which I'm not sure that's a good or bad thing as an entrepreneur because I, I just don't like, I don't buy, I'm not competing with Netflix, right? I don't want to compete with them. I'm creating my own lane and I'm just trying to do things I think will be best for the company to keep us alive. And um, I can't, I can't spend seven million dollars. I can't compete with Netflix for vision programming. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm just not. I'm gonna. I only can do what I can control, right? I mean, that's a, that's a quote says you can only, um, you only can control like what your resources. Something like you only can do so much. And I know what I can't control. I can, can, I can acquire great documentaries and, and shorts and other films from filmmakers who've been to film festivals. I know I can do that. I can do that well. And I'm just gonna focus on that and. When the time comes so I can afford the original show, I will do it at that time. That's, right, well, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It, go it, go it, ahead, Jeff. I'm just really impressed by your business model and the way you're approaching your business. Because, you know, you've seen a lot of uh, these streaming services shut their doors in the last couple of years. You know, like uh, the CISO, the, the NBC comedy one or whatever that they had and uh, Black Pills was another one that was doing original short programming and they just closed down full screen, I think was another one. Um, and they're all shutting down because they put like millions and millions of dollars into content mm-hmm. creation and then they're not getting the return that they right. need, you know, and doing it your way where you're like, you're not putting as much money out, but you're able to get a return and then you're paying back your filmmakers, you're paying yourself, you're running your company. Dang, that's awesome. I'm just... I really wish other people would run their businesses that way but too. Not competitors, not competitors. Keep keep competing with Netflix. Keep creating original programming. Good luck with that. <laughs> right, I, but that's just it. I told you, Ulrich. She's she's awesome. I mean, but you know, the, and and that's the things. Like as far as you know, trying to be a Netflix or trying to be a Hulu or what have you. Like these companies have started like years ago, and then they're really just now. I think they're just barely scratching the surface as far as like creating original content. I mean, Netflix was the first to do that. And that was like some foreign film that had one of the guys that I think was on uh, what the Sopranos a while back or something like that. And then it just, you know, blew up from there, but you know, that took time, but, but I mean, you've, you've been traveling extensively uh, promoting uh, Quayle. I mean, so what, other than incubators, like, are you going to like just straight companies or are you going to, uh, these are like pitch contests or something like that. I, I explain how you're able to fund, uh, Koyle for just a, a brief. Sure. I know we talked about it before. Yeah, so yeah. I've competed in about seven or eight pitch competitions. I've won every single one. Now I apply to pitch competitions and I don't always get accepted to pitch. But if I do pitch, I try to pitch to win um, because I don't have investors, you know, like traditional investors, so I need the money. So I work really hard to try to win my pitch competition. And I found them different ways um, through doing research online, through incubators. You know, I may get an email. I'm I'm part of a couple of groups where they say, hey, there's a pitch pitch competition, and I apply for it, and I may not get in. If I do get in, I work my butt off and try to win it. And so it's just me connecting with people, learning about different opportunities out there. And there's a site called F6S. It's just the letter F, the number six, and the letter S, and .com. That's it. And they have a list. Oh, yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, they have a list of incubators, yeah. accelerators, pitch competitions, 
all types of things that you can choose from to to participate in. And so I I go there. I don't go there as much anymore, but like 2016, 2017, I was in there at least once a week applying to something. And most of the times I didn't get in, but when I did, I worked my butt off to win. And that's pretty much how you have to live your life because as an entrepreneur, even as a filmmaker, right, you're trying to raise money or trying to do what you're going to get so many no's. I get so many no's. I tell people, no, it's my middle name. My middle name is actually Lisa. That's actually my real middle name. But my <laughs> second middle name is no, Deshaun and Lisa. No, Spencer. That's my name. And so I get so many no's and it can be so depressing, <laughs> right? Like no upon no upon no. And it could, it could it will crush most people. And I get depressed sometimes. I shed a little tear, you know, and but I keep it moving. I was talking to someone last night about, you know, getting no's and, and getting opportunities. So I remember last year, it was separate last year, I was at Harvard Business School. They had a pitch competition through the African Business Club. And so every Ivy League school I learned has uh, like this different clubs for different countries or different, you know, communities. So it's one for Africa. And so the African Business Club, they have an annual pitch competition, which is, I think, by far like the largest for, uh, for Africans as far as Ivy League school goes. And so I learned about it through a WhatsApp chat that I'm part of a bunch of entrepreneurs. They're all from Africa, different parts of Africa. And it was a pitch competition I learned about like November 2016. And so I was like, well, I'm not African, African American. And I have films from Africa. Let me apply anyway. I applied and I was a finalist. And also, I was, it's funny because I had to find myself to to Boston and everything, but I also had like tickets to see Music Soul Child and <laughs> whole bunch of people. I was like, ah, should I go? Should I do this pitch? I probably won't win. I want to see Music Soul Child. I was like, you better go that day, go. Are you serious? <laughs> you better go to Boston. <laughs> you can see music anytime. So I went. I went there, and it, I was so nervous. It was. It was. It's Harvard, right? I graduated from Jackson State University <laughs> and in Mississippi, and I never imagined I would be at Harvard Business School on the stage pitching my company, and I won a pitch competition. That's, yeah. that's awesome. And it was a crowd, like I think 600 people in their business school auditorium were all clapping for me as I won, and um, it was interesting, right before I went on stage to pitch, I was just checking my email because I'm like addicted to my phone, and... I was literally, as I was scrolling through, I had gotten an email about another competition that I had pitched for that I didn't move on to the next round. And then, like, Deshauna Spencer, point to me, clap, 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 walk, walk on stage to do my pitch. Literally, right before I went on stage, like, that's what I read. And so I feel like that crushed me, right? Like, oh, my God, I'm not going to win this. I couldn't win this small, wiki-thinky competition. I'm going to win at Harvard. <laughs> but I went on stage and, you know, did the best I could and, you know, won. But that's the reality of being an entrepreneur or starting anything. You hear no, yes, all the time. Like, it's just a part of it. Right. Uh, Speaking as an actor, hearing the word no is uh, that's my middle name, too, as well. Just 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 so you know. But, you know, it's just it's just having that perseverance to get up and do the next one. No, get up, do the next one. So, you know, kudos for a having you know the straight up balls to like create something as this as crazy as it sounded to you in the beginning and then look where it looked 
look what you've done. You you did a pitch at Harvard University. I mean, did did you think something like that would would ever happen? But I've I've got I've got a like a couple more questions, and I know I know we're about to run out of time. But number one, uh, tell us about your subscribers like what wh- do you know where where they're coming from in other parts of the world uh, uh, other than the united states and do you think knowing what you know now should should artists worry about american audiences like should we focus on american audiences or should we focus more on a in a global spectrum so our customers eight of our customers are based in the u.s or well i'll say north america and then of north america you know, about 90% of them are U.S.-based. 10% of our customers are based in Europe. We're mostly being in the U.K. because, of course, it makes sense, English-speaking, with a few sprinkles of, like, um, of uh, France and the Netherlands, actually. <laughs> um, and then we have a, the rest of 10% uh, between Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa. And so across Africa is Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, in um, Latin America, it's mostly Brazil, Colombia, um, and then for Caribbean, it's mostly Trinidad, uh, Costa Rica, which is really interesting to see Costa Rica pop up, pop up there. That's basically our audience. And then as far as who your audience is, I always tell people when I write or when I'm being creative, I I don't I, I think about the audience. I think um, people think too much about how the audience will react to a story. Versus saying this is a story I want to tell the world. I think that I don't think you should focus on who the target audience is. I think you should focus on what you want people to get out of the story. Because I think that a story can impact anyone. This week I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I got back yesterday. <laughs> and one of when the, the organization who who um, that flew me there. I pitched to the founder of the company in Denver a month earlier, and he invited me to Santa Fe to tour his company um, called Miyagua. And when he reached out to me, he was saying that one of his um, employees is a subscriber to Pilly TV. I assumed it was a black girl. And when she picked me up from the airport and she's like, yeah, I learned my Pilly TV a couple months ago. I thought it was so dope. Um, she was saying that her friend learned about Chloe TV because her friend was at a concert in LA and she said Talib Kweli, which is another like weird thing, shouted <laughs> Chloe TV out before leaving the stage. Like, you know, it's culture, it's about us, for us, you know, you so I was oh, like, wow. what? It's like, wow. Talib Kweli, like, are you really? <laughs> and so uh, she's like, yeah. And so she told me about it and I went online and I subscribed. And this is a white girl from Los Angeles who lives in Santa Fe. We have all types of customers. When I meet white people who like look at the website, they're like, wow, I can watch this. Yeah, you can. Like, because <laughs> they think that because it's black culture, it's not for them, right? Well, this is about them. No, this is about educating. It's about educating people about this culture. So it's not about creating something that only people in our culture can relate to because there are things in the Brazilian culture or we have films from. Brazil, Ecuador, and Venezuela about Black people that I didn't know existed. I didn't know these parts about their culture. And I'm learning about my Black culture, but in a different way from another, in another country. And so I think that people should stop focusing on, okay, this is this is this movie is for this for millennials and who are who are married with one child. People spend so much time and energy 
focusing on a bracket versus telling a story. And I think people should just focus on telling a story and the people who are meant to get it will get it. I mean, that's just kind of how I see it. Because like people sometimes say, oh, it's going to be a millennial streaming service. No, millennials are going to die one day. Why not create a service for a generation? <laughs> We're all going to die, right? You've got long-term goals for this. This isn't exactly. just for right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's great advice for any filmmaker, though, is that you should just tell the story that you want to tell and focus on the story and not mm-hmm. focus on the results. You know, we say that a lot on the podcast. Yeah. Like, don't make your filmmaking results-oriented. Don't focus on what audiences it's going to appeal to. I mean, that's the for the marketers. Like, just tell a story that matters to you, you know, and that, that you want to see on the screen. And then hopefully somebody else wants right. to see that, too, you know. And most likely they, they will. It focuses so much. <laughs> you know, a lot of the black movies that come out, you know, the comedies, I feel like they're like this, okay, this, this particular comedian, check, you know, this particular storyline, check, you know, as a choir singing, check, you know, I just feel like, <laughs> right, <laughs> sorry, I'm just saying, right, I just feel like they're like, you know, there's Jesus, so much is, you know, so a single mom, okay, I just feel like, it's like they're trying to um, do these checks and balances, like, hey, this this black audience that black audience now we're going to get as many black people as possible because we've encompassed you know, all the black people think you know then there's the the i don't know i just i just get frustrated with that i feel like i know that you crazy movie just because you think i'm going to watch some black person versus like this story need to be told i wanted to impact my impact the world because i had to tell a story there's a total difference in how you can you can just tell a difference in in stories and in movies and, and the approach of how it's made and so I don't want to be a statistic and someone create a movie because they think I'm going to watch it because I'm black or I like to laugh or I like a choir or like church or something. I just feel like, <laughs> no, but seriously, <laughs> like that's how it seems to be sold, right? Because black people are monolithic, right? We all like one thing, right? <laughs> that's how it seems. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <And> of course. <laughs> and so I, I'm really proving that we're not monolithic and we are you know, some of us are from the hood and some of us are from upper middle class and some of us are from Brazil and we, and we all look the same, but we're all from different parts of the world. I want to show that, that the, the diversity of, of our culture that people may not think will sell, right? And I think a lot of our films, they're so particular. People like, I wouldn't, you would never see these types of films on a mainstream TV network because TV network, they have their numbers, they have their demographics they want to appease to. And if it doesn't fit in that particular box, Right, especially a foreign film with with subtitles. You know who wants to deal with the drama, but we have right. you know, our subtitle right. films are pretty popular. You know people are reading the subtitles. <laughs> Believe it or not, black folks take the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like what? movies with subtitles. Yeah, yeah, I much rather watch a movie with subtitles, you know, in the actual language that it was shot in, oh than like God, a stupid yes. dub version. Like that's case of four, You know, last weekend, um, I like want to take some time off from that work. I was watching Tribeca. I don't have cable, but I do have Sling. You know, a Tribeca shortlist. I was I, that's the only time I kind of watch because actually I have really interesting movies. I don't like watching besides Food Network. I do like Food Network, but besides that, I don't watch anything else. And so um, they had a it was a really great um, Chinese comedy, and it wasn't like dubbed with like you know some white guy trying to sound Asian, you know, you know talking over the mouth. It was literally so it was subtitles. And um, my husband came home. He actually watched the rest of it with me. He was laughing a lot, like yes. I think I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm getting to him. And so it was a really great, and I learned so much <laughs> about the Asian culture that you typically, I typically would not have learned about watching an American movie about Asian culture. 
And so um, it was really great to see the dynamic of a, of a family and, and it was like such a graphic angle, but it was a really, really great film. And I like those types of stories, like authentic stories where I can travel to China or Nigeria, Brazil, in these places because I can't afford it. But if the story is authentic, I felt like I was there because I can almost smell the food on between and on the TV because it looks so good. Like the father was like a, a cook or something, like a paint. And I can, the food looks so wow. good. And I was like, man, yeah. I can almost smell it, right? And so watching these films, like when we show these films about cultures around the world and I'm learning about uh, how black people, their, their, their eating habits in other parts of the world, like, wow, like I can't physically travel to Brazil or anywhere else, but I can at least feel like I'm there because I'm, I'm watching authentic story um, through my television, through my phone and tablet, whatever, how she want to watch it. But that's, that's really important to me. And I think that most you know execs in Hollywood and most marketers don't really see that. I think they're focused so much. It's they're focused so much on the old way of doing it. The who's our target audience? We need to get these young people in the seats. Um, and maybe it may not be the seats, right? It may not be the movie theater. It may just be something that people. I think people at home are likely are more open to trying something new versus like spending money and driving to a movie theater. And I don't know if you would be as successful if we were just solely on okay we're going to make put these movies to the big screen versus this is the privacy of your home you know you get a chance to watch films you would not have heard about otherwise and you get a chance to take a gamble on a movie or a filmmaker or 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 an actor that you never heard of before like this gives you an opportunity to do that awesome awesome and yeah um so one 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 final uh thing so how does a filmmaker submit to Quayley tv and is there any type of content that you feel uh, your service needs right now? So on our website, if you scroll down to the bottom, which is, well, www.kweli.tv, if you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see Submit Film Show, and you just click that. It gives you the information that we need in order to, you know, for, like, to, for you to submit your film. So um, we need a Vimeo link, you know, the, the password, people send Vimeo link, and there's a password. Um, we also need to make sure it has, it has to be in a film festival um, that is not up for debate. And so we do, you know, get emails from people like, well, we, we don't think we want to do that other route. I'm like, okay, well, good luck. Sorry. You know, because we initially tried to uh, be open to films that have been in film festivals and we just got, oh my God, we got so many crazy submissions. We actually got- <laughs> You need some type of vetting process. We need some type of vetting. <laughs> we, got, we got a video of a brother sent, um, a nine, it was 1996 because it was um, embedded on the bottom of the video of a Master P concert in Jackson, Mississippi. Someone actually submitted that. Um, <laughs> Master P? Oh my God. From 1996. Wow. June Funny. something, 1996. <laughs> like, sorry, sorry, it doesn't really need a criteria. You, should not, you can start taking music. If we did take music, we would not take your home um, shot version of a video with Master P. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm mad he thought it was Master P was going to get him on. That's insane. It's not, from 1986, it was grainy. It was so like 90, so like MTV 96 ish looking. It was so bad. Oh, bless his so, heart. Said, so, we need to test. Oh, it's fine. Um, I watched like the first five minutes of it. It's like, okay, really? I'm like, is there more to this? Is this like a documentary that's going to go to something else? Like, nope, it was just a video. And so, or like a concert that he recorded live or something like that. And so um, from 1996, that he's trying to hold on to forever. Like, this is finally my chance to get out here to the world. <laughs> 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 Poor guy's like, he's just like, really? Just trying to, oh, damn you. <laughs> but um, 
So it hasn't been a film festival, but if you go to the website, um, it shows you know, kind of the criteria that we're looking for. And then as far as content, we're looking for all types of content. We definitely want international filmmakers to submit to us because whenever we release content, we always want to release at least two films for, you know, internationally. So we're also looking for international films. Like it's a huge part of what we do. And so content from the Caribbean, content from Latin America, we get a lot of submissions from Africa. So we're getting, you know, we're always, you know, getting content from there, but um, anywhere around the world. And then we're also looking for sci-fi films. People are always asking for sci-fi, fantasy, horror films in which the lead character is black. Well, I got one for you. Uh, okay. It's called, it's called Brother. It's um it's already on a couple other platforms, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it hits, it checks those boxes. So okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah, please do. We're definitely looking for sci-fi. Children's programming is another thing that we're looking for. Um, people are also looking for content that their kids can relate to, and so that's another genre that we're also looking for. We're also looking for all types. We don't think if you have a, a drama or a comedy and we don't take it, we will definitely take it. Um, documentaries, dramas tend to be our biggest genre right now, um, just because that's what a lot of people tend to make. We do have some sci-fi on the platform. We definitely want more. And we have some children's programming as well. I think our smallest genre right now are, are comedies, mainly because the indie comedies just are, to me, oh my God, like they're weak with stereotypes and I just yeah. refuse to, I just refuse. I just, I don't. I, it's I, also I hard. Just, Comedy's mm-hmm. really hard, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I, I agree. So I don't want to pull anyone, but it's, it's just, it's hard. How, how can you do a clean cut comedy? Like one good comedy on platform is a good point. It's a, it's a short film called The Bill, right? And it's about, it's eight minutes long, but it's hilarious. It's really about I know some a woman she turned 35 years old and the, the check comes and she hangs with like a whole bunch of girlfriends and you know how a lot of folks they you know have the, the group check it comes and people start tripping it's really just an eight minute film about people tripping about the bill is you know it's and it's a good comedy it's not we can stereotype but it's like a, a true reaction to how some people act when they get the bill versus some comedies like one person submitted a, a comedy and the stereotypical character was actually a Latino gay guy. And I rejected the film because of one character because he was extremely over the top. He was groping people at work, you know, and I know a lot of gay men. I don't know a gay man who has ever groped their coworkers at work and people laugh. Oh, that's how, you know, uh, Ricardo is no, no, I don't know. It's wrong. Like, yeah, he's, no he's one should be character. grouping anyone at work. That's not okay. It's not right. okay, and it's not quote unquote funny because you know it's a you know it to me it's like I don't. They were going overboard about how a gay character would act at work, and I don't know any gay men who's ever acted that their way at work, and so they were they were not happy about me rejecting that film. But I just did not want to portray, even though the character was Latino person who's not a part of our community, but. It's still not a, it still wasn't a stereotype that I was willing to to be comfortable with, and so we rejected that film. Wow, that's good. It's good that you have your your uh, you know your morals, and that you're like you know not going to accept things just because it's popular or because people think it's funny or whatever. That you're just like you're really you know only putting out the movies that you really like and you approve. I think that's really admirable. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate it. 
Um, okay, so we're way over, so we gotta we gotta wrap this up. So, um, besides Quayle TV, is there anything else you want people to check out? Do you have a Twitter, Instagram, anything that you want to point people to? My well, my Twitter is important. Quayle TV is it. so it's just Quayle TV, K W E L I T V. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're now Snapchat. We have a Snapchat, but I don't use it, so we're not <laughs> on it technically. <laughs> I, I'm gonna try to figure it out. I'm just not even, you know, I'm not like 17, so I'm not gonna figure it out, but. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Quilly TV, and then Quilly.tv. That's our website. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Deshana. Um, you can also check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com. You can find uh, links to things we talked about in this episode. And I'm really hoping that Deshana is going to release her movie by the time this comes out so yes. we can have the link. Because I think it would be really great for everyone to see, especially uh, aspiring filmmakers. Because... I think people get really like in their head about like jumping out and making their first movie. And mm -hmm. I love your story of how you just did it. You're like, I've, I've never done this before. I'm going to take some classes. I'm going to learn. I'm going to do it. And you made a movie that really touched people. So I think you should share it with the world. That's my opinion. But I know it's hard. So I understand. Yes. Yes. I don't know. I don't do know. it. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you want to gain contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at MMIH Podcast. And please, if you dig the show, tell a friend, help us get the word out. You can also leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And thanks, Jeff, for a great episode. And Deshana, this was amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks, thanks. All right. See you guys next week. <laughs>